Be seated. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. You can follow along with Luke chapter 6. And we're going to be diving into um, part 3 of the Sermon on the Plain. We've been going through Luke's Gospel now for 30 weeks, actually keeping our, our goal, or pretty close to our goal, of 10 verses a week. But Luke's got very long chapters, and it's rich, rich material. So I just want to remind you of where we are. After giving the birth announcement stories and the birth accounts of both John the Baptist and Jesus, Luke gave us a snapshot of the ministry of John the Baptist, and he was pointing people to Jesus, preparing the way, and calling upon the people to be baptized for repentance of sins. And then the baton is passed, and and Jesus is baptized by John, and he receives the Holy Spirit as he's praying. And then... As our major character introduced now as an adult, we get the genealogy of Jesus, then the tempting, the testing of Jesus, the proving to the reader of the, of the declarations ascribed to him. We can see for ourselves the righteousness, the integrity of this man. And then Jesus begins his ministry. And what Jesus' ministry is characterized by is teaching. As much as the miracles grab our attention, Luke has on no less than six times indicated that Jesus is teaching wherever he goes. And yet despite telling us this, he's in the synagogues teaching, he's on the Sabbath teaching, he's going around Judea teaching, we've not heard much of his teaching, and that's intentional. Luke wants us to understand who this one is who is teaching before we get any developed teaching. In other words, Luke wants us, when we hear the Lord teach, he wants us to listen to it not as, that's interesting, or a motivational speaker or a wise sage. Luke has established for us in chapter 5 in particular the deity of Christ, the authority of Christ. Peter and the leper falling on their faces in front of him, calling him Lord, Jesus emphatically establishing that he alone has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus identifying himself as the bridegroom who will bring about the messianic age and blessing. And only then will Luke give us Jesus' teaching. He's also introduced for us the uh, Jesus' adversaries, and we saw the story arc, as it were, of the Pharisees introduced first in chapter 5 when Jesus heals the paralytic, and they're, they're just there. They came from all about to hear him, to see him, and they stumble over his claims to have authority to forgive sins. And, and what starts first as offense moves into questions as they ask his disciples, why does your... Why why does your master eat and drink with sinners? They're offended that he eats and drinks with Levi, the tax collector. And they're they're further offended when they they grumble and challenge Jesus about why, why don't his disciples fast like the disciples of the Pharisees and of John the Baptist. And finally, in two Sabbath controversies, we get the final state or the hardened state of the Pharisees when they charge him with doing what is not lawful and they're conniving, plotting to accuse him. And in chapter 6, verse 11, the last word we heard about the Pharisees, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now that's important to note because Jesus will begin in his teaching this week to start referencing those other teachers. 
So we've got to remember that. And then Jesus appoints his 12 apostles. He spends the night in prayer. He comes down, and he begins teaching. And here, for the first time in Luke's narrative, we have prolonged teaching of Jesus. And so let's start by reiterating who is he speaking to. Now, if you look at verse 20 of chapter 6, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. This is teaching to disciples. And disciples in Luke are distinguished from the crowds. There's a great multitude of disciples, Luke tells us. In verse 17, he came down with them, stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. And so there's, there's at least two groups that are present, and Jesus, we're told, is speaking to the disciples. And I said the disciples is, is in many respects a good fit for the people who are gathered here this morning. Jesus' disciples are people who to some degree or another have made some level of commitment, some level of association with Jesus. The disciple literally means a student or a learner. And these are people who would recognize Jesus, at least in some sense, as their teacher. And yet, we know from reading the Gospels that the group swells and it shrinks, and at times, large chunks of them desert him. It doesn't guarantee they're saved peoples. Many of them are. Many of them will finish through to the end. But they're distinguished from the crowds, at least in so much as they are people who have some identification with, some sense of allegiance towards Jesus. And I'm guessing if you're here this morning... That would, that would be a, probably a description of you. You're, you're here. You could be doing something else. You, you at least have some level of wanting to hear what God's word says. You've come to a Christian church. There's some level of allegiance to Jesus. So as much as there are within our group, those who are sold out followers of Christ, many of you, there are some who I know this is their first time here. And so Jesus' message is, is, is aptly for us, because we are a bunch of his disciples in various respects, And Jesus began his sermon by giving four blessings and four woes. Very Jewish way of of teaching. You can go back to Psalm 1 and see the same format. You can read through the Proverbs. And Jesus is helping this large multitude of disciples figure out where they stand in relationship to him. And he identifies mindsets that accompany the blessing of true discipleship and woes or curses that would, would identify those of his would-be disciples who are not really following him. And he basically says, how you think about yourself. Blessed are you who are poor before God. Matthew even adds, poor in spirit. How do you view yourself before God? Or do you feel that you're a good person? God's lucky to have you on his team. And then those who, are you hungering and thirsting for something this world can satisfy or something God alone can satisfy? How satisfying is this world to you? And how do you feel about your sin? Are you mourning your sin? And ultimately, whose approval are you seeking? Do you seek the approval of man and their applause? Jesus says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Conversely, he says positively, blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Again, notice he's speaking to people who have some already association with him. He's not telling you how to be saved. The hallmarks of the heart and the mind and the attitudes that accompany genuine salvation. And then, last week, we looked at Jesus give a very hard message on loving our enemies. Hard words. And again, we must not misunderstand. Jesus is not saying, if you do these things, you will be right with God. But rather, those of you who are my disciples, those of you who are right with God, will do these things. I mean, look down a little further to um, verse 46. 
as we'll look at this next week. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So Jesus is assuming for those who are his true disciples, to those who are his children, to those who are his brothers in the faith, they're going to do what he says. Now, you're not saved by doing what he says, but you evidence your salvation. Or as he says in verse 43, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. That's, again, important to reedify because he's going to say some things today that could be easily misunderstood to mean you're saved by doing these things. Let's, let's look at our text this morning now. Having just told us to love our enemies, having told us to put up with abuse, having told us to turn the other cheek and to be willing to be defrauded, he ended last week by telling us that in so doing, look at verse 35, love your enemies, do good, Lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And so he ends it by telling us, in so doing, we'll be sons of God. Now, that notion of sons is not you're going to become a son, but you evidence your sonship, and sonship is a functional category. You know, chip off the old block, like father, like son, and in so much as you are loving your enemies, you look like your father who loved his enemies and sent his son to them, and insofar as you put up with abuse and scorn, you, you bear the image of your father who puts up with men cursing him all day long, and his rain falls upon the just and the unjust, and he is kind and gracious. And that's the understanding that moves into what follows, giving us the standard of God's character. We pick up in verse 36 through 42, our text this morning. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. And this morning when we look through this, we're going to see Jesus' call to compassionate mercy. It, it's, it's the second part of the heart of his message. The sermon begins with the parenthetical woes and blessings. It's going to end with a call to action. It's going to end with a call to action starting next week where Jesus, in verse 43, talks about the two trees bearing the fruit the two, the two ways of building a house, the one who hears and obeys has a stable house. The one who hears and does not obey is destroyed and sandwiched in between that, his, his bold declaration, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? So like any good message, it's got an introduction, it's got a body, it's got a conclusion with some application. And we're in the second half of the, of the middle, the body this is a sermon about love, a standard of love, an ethic of love for all of Jesus' true disciples, for all of Jesus' true followers. 
Last week we saw the focus on loving enemies. This week the call to imitate God's character and compassion and mercy. Be merciful, judge not, condemn not, forgive, give. This is what our Lord is calling us to. This is what the Lord is calling his disciples to. This is not how you become a disciple. But this is what is demanded of, what is expected of, and the fruit that all true disciple trees will bear. Jesus' call to compassionate mercy. We're going to look at this in three points. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Take care to follow the right leader in verses 39 to 40, and then remove the log first, then the splinter. So let's dive in, verses 36 to 38. And here, after giving us the standard, be merciful as your Father is merciful, Jesus gives us four commands with, with benefits that result. And this is where we got to be careful, because you could look at this and how do, how do you avoid the judgment to come? Well, judge not. And how do you avoid being condemned in the afterlife? Just don't be condemning now. And if, if I want God to forgive me, all I have to do is forgive other people. And you could conclude that if I simply just do these things with no relationship to God or Jesus, just don't do these things, I'm all set with God. That's not what's being said. This is not about how you become forgiven or how you, you get to escape the judgment to come. Rather, there's a, there's a correlation and a causation. It's, it's, it's back to the fruit imagery that we'll look at next week. The reason why those who forgive will be forgiven is because by bearing figs, they're proving they're a fig tree. The reason why those who do not judge will not be judged is because by bearing the image of their father, they prove their new nature. This is, this is really more flowing out of what he said in verse 35, proving that we are sons of the Most High. And as we bear the character of our Father and as we bear the character of our Lord, we will demonstrate that we are those who will escape judgment, who will escape condemnation, who will be forgiven. And that's the way we've got to understand this. This isn't salvation by forgiving or salvation by not judging. At the same time, it also assumes there can be no split between what we believe and what we do. Because we're immediately hardwired to ask, well, what about those who trust Christ who don't forgive? And what about those who truly trust Christ and still judge people and condemn people? To which the answer is, no tree bears bad fruit. If the fruit you're bearing consistently is thorns... Jesus is giving this message in in particular in part to help his disciples size up where they're at. We'll, We'll deal with that more next week. But notice Jesus is assuming the correlation between true discipleship and these actions. And he's going to rebuke them in verse 46. He's going to rebuke the person who thinks Jesus is their Lord and Savior, and yet they get to do what they want. And without stealing too much thunder from next week, he's going to make it clear by the way he says it. You're not my disciple if you don't obey me. I'm not your Lord if you think you get to do what you want. And and so this text is assuming that relationship. That's why these statements can be true. If you don't judge, you won't be judged. If you don't condemn, you won't be condemned. If you're forgiving, you'll be forgiven. Not salvation by doing those things, but demonstrating by the fruit we bear what type of tree we are, a good fruit tree or a thorn tree. Okay. So let's now work through this list. Now the standard is, is our Father. The concept is bearing out this notion of sonship. How do we do that? Well, ultimately, it's summed up in being merciful. In being merciful. Our Father is merciful. We are to be merciful. 
Last week we looked at how to respond to evil, how to love our enemies. Here we're looking at a corollary notion of love, being merciful. Let's look at the first one. Don't be judgmental. Don't be judgmental. Now if our culture knows any verse in the Bible, it is this verse, is it not? And the most often quoted verse you will hear is, judge not, lest you be judged. It's largely misunderstood. In fact, one preacher has said, yes, but twist not scripture, lest you be like Satan. That you need to understand these verses. Um, we need to understand these verses. Now, first off, these are present active verbs. Literally, what Jesus is saying is, do not continue to judge. Don't be judging all the time. And as we see, even if you look down to the bottom of our text this morning, verse 42, it's not ruling out any and all judgment. And judgment's a word that we got to talk about. Every one of you exercises judgment. When you go to the supermarket and you're sizing up different pieces of fruit and you want your bananas that aren't too ripe but aren't too green, you're using judgment. You're, you're discerning. You're separating. You're, you're sizing things up, and that's what I want. That's not what we all do that. When you buy a car, you're exercising judgment. No one lives without that sense of judgment. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, this is the judgment that looks down the nose at people that's constantly looking for faults, that is happy to find something wrong. Listen to James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Similar concept. I think it'll make clear what's being forbidden here. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one, only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? And so so what's being spoken of here is not, not the judgment we're to apply as Christians. The scripture talks about various times we're supposed to use judgment. Jesus himself in John 7, 24 says, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. And Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, believers settling lawsuits in the church. Aren't there people wise enough to make judgments? I mean, this is not some wholesale tolerance. Rather, Jesus is, is forbidding coming at people as if you're the judge. I mean, I think James is very insightful there on how to handle this. When we speak evil against one another, we make ourselves the judge, and that's what we're never to do. You and I are not the judge in that sense. I'll use an analogy. If, if one of my children is outside and they're doing something they should not do, I could, I generally try not to do this because it doesn't generally work out that well, but I could send one of my other children to go give them the the word. Abner, please tell Sophie to stop playing in the puddle or something like that. And there's all the difference in the world whether Abner goes to my daughter as as my emissary, as my communicating for me and says, Sophie, daddy, daddy wants you to stop doing that. And Abner coming out and going, Sophie, how dare you? I am just shocked and ashamed that you would be... You get the difference? Now, we are absolutely to size things up biblically. We are absolutely called to, to use discernment. There are times and places where we are to offer judgment. We're never the judge. At best, we're the kid carrying dad's message. What we're basically, in effect, saying is, hey, dad, dad said we shouldn't be doing this. Dad said we shouldn't be doing this. Rather than, 
coming across as, as overly judgmental in that sense. I, a while back, did an ABF went through some of this stuff. I put a handout in the back table talking about how to judge and how not to judge. Because the Bible has a lot to say about this. You know, we're not to judge motives or the hearts of other people. But we are to offer a judgment of, of, of understanding things. We all do this every day, sizing things up biblically. What does God say about this? Using discernment. But here, what we're really dealing with, that mercy, is, is you, know, you and I both know there's a type of person who's looking for things. They like being the judge. They like pronouncing the judgment. In 1 Timothy 6, some false teachers are described this way. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Don't be judging all the time. Don't be so judgmental. Conversely, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Giving people the benefit of the doubt, giving, realizing we don't have all the information. Now, I think this is meant to be, and we're going to see a backdrop to some people that have been introduced already in this narrative, and I think that will become clear as we move along. So don't be judgmental. Next, don't condemn. And this is really a corollary to judgment. Judgment is the guilty verdict. Condemnation is now the punishment being brought in. Don't condemn. It's not our job to condemn. At best, we are our Father's children bringing his word and his message and his law. We're not the lawgiver or the judge in that sense. Matthew 12, 7, the parallel passage when, when the Pharisees were rebuking Jesus' disciples for, for, for grinding the food, Jesus says this, Matthew five twelve, rebuking them. If you had known what this means, that desire, mercy, and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And this is a fine line for us to walk because our culture hears, if you disagree with me, then you hate me, and I need a safe place because I feel threatened. Right? And so we've got to be able to walk that balance where we can say clearly, when it's appropriate, no, I don't, I don't think that's right. I don't agree with that. There's absolutely a place for that, to be a witness. Even in witnessing the gospel isn't part of the message of the gospel. You, you've sinned and offended God. I mean, I have too. But, but we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we're all facing a divine judgment. And no, not all religions get us there. And, and so there's a very real sense in which we're announcing judgment. There's a judgment to come. You can escape it. That's That's fine. Now, our culture has a hard time distinguishing. If you don't just think I'm wonderful just as I am, then you're judging me. And, and sometimes I think we can feel a sense of false guilt. But there's all the difference in the world from saying, no, I, I don't think that's right, to being caustic and cynical and, and sneering and making rude remarks and God's going to get you comments that I, I do think sound judgmental and condemning, and I don't think adorn the doctrine of Christ the beauty. And so we need to learn how to speak the truth in love and making it clear we are also under the law. 
It's really easy when we're dealing with sins we don't struggle with to start to add that contempt, to start to add that holier than thou, that judgmental, that I can't believe you'd be doing this, right? And Jesus is telling his disciples, be merciful, don't do that. Don't do that. We've already seen, we've already seen that the Pharisees do that. And Luke, back a chapter in verse, chapter 5, verse 20, when he forgave their sins. No, chapter 5, verse 30. Um, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, this is a class of people, they'd already, <laughs> they're accursed. God's going to judge them, and we have nothing to do with them. God hates them, and we do too. Was sort of the mentality. Condemn not, judge not. What are we to do instead? Point C, be forgiving. Be forgiving. Now, the word here for forgiving is not the normal word used to forgive. It really means more of an acquittal, release. This gets back to the notion of mercy. I think to some degree it assumes the person has asked for forgiveness. We're to forgive, and we'll be forgiven. We're not to judge, we won't be judged. We're not to condemn, we won't be condemned. So our, our not judging and our not condemning and our forgiving is modeling our fathers. Now, God doesn't forgive those who don't come to him and ask for forgiveness. The, the, the word for acquittal here, it's, it's used, in fact, turn a couple chapters later and look to chapter 23. It's not a very common word, and it has in view that aspect of forgiveness, the release. It's used here, you'll see it a couple places in Luke um, 23, 16 to 18. Luke 23, 16 to 18. Pilate has Jesus, and he wants to try to find a way to let him off the hook. And he says... I found nothing deserving of punishment done by him. And then verse 16, I will therefore punish and, there's our word, release him. Release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release, same word, to us Barabbas, man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. This is the aspect of forgiveness of the letting go not holding on to it. We're being merciful. We're not looking out for people to offend us and wrong us. We're not looking out to judge people. We're not trying to bring down the condemnation hammer, and we're eager and willing to forgive. We're not holding on. Be forgiven. Be forgiving. And then the standard of our forgiveness is like God. How many times do you and I go to God again and again, day after day, with the same issues, the same things? Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. And I'm so thankful that the Lord does not respond the way I'm tempted to sometimes. What again? you got to be kidding me. It's like the 10th time. To no, the Lord forgives when, whenever we truly and rightly come to him. And we are to forgive as well. This is how it, we show mercy. We're not carrying a judgmental spirit. We're not eager to condemn like we're the judge and lawgiver. Rather, we're forgiving and being forgiven. And finally, point D here in this first section, be generous. Be generous. Give, and this is the one that gets the largest explanation, and it will be given to you. And then we get this wonderful description. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for the measure you use will be measured back to you. Be generous. Now here, we're using an agricultural, a grain metaphor. 
Literally in your lap is the fold of your garment. And you'd go, to the, you'd go to the market or to the grain trader and you'd take your robe and you'd lift it up forming a, a hollow and they'd pour the grain and they'd measure it out in ephah of, of grain. And you want to make sure you get the most grain you can get. So you want to shake that thing so it settles, press it down, make some more room. That, that's the picture here. What's, what's the idea? It's abundant. It's full. It's not partial. It's not like Swiss cheese with pockets of air in the middle. This is, this is good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over in your lap. We can just be generous. We can just give. You'll be abundantly, the blank is repaid. Repaid. Now turn over to Luke 12. Ultimately, Jesus has told us our repayment and our reward is in the resurrection. It's in heaven. But Jesus also elsewhere makes it clear that if we will follow his commands and if we will follow his example and if we will seek first his kingdom, his father will take care of our needs. You know, our fear, of course, to not be generous is to hold on to what we have, right? I need it or I might need it. And in Luke chapter 12, verses 21 to 31, or 22, he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If you are not able then to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not erased like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So Jesus is encouraging us to be generous. He's promising us we will be repaid. And then he adds with the standard that we with the standard that we measure, it'll be measured back to you. And something Paul picks up on in 2 Corinthians 9. The blank here, according to your own standard, you'll be abundantly repaid, but according to your own standard. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul, after giving a lengthy exhortation, trying to raise money for the Jerusalem church who was starving, says this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We have opportunities now in our generosity and our giving to, to not only reap bountifully, but reap bountifully with, with rewards and dividends that last forever. We can store up treasure in heaven, Jesus says elsewhere, where the moth and rust do not destroy. And here he is. It's the only one of these four commands that gets this type of unpacking. He wants us to be like, no, seriously, God's not going to rip you off. You're not going to get the bad end of this deal. Be generous, and you will receive back Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put in your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And then our text, moving on, seems to take a turn. 
He's just given us these commands to be merciful. Then he starts talking about take care that you follow the right leader. And then in, in, in verses 41 to 42, we come back to not being judgmental. So what's this whole bit with the leaders in the middle? This is why I think he's had in view the Pharisees as he's been going through this. What Jesus is doing as he prepares to call his disciples to obedience, to call his disciples to follow him, he's been highlighting the need to rightly choose and to take care whom you follow. He gives them a parable, which is a way of explaining something. He asks a rhetorical question, and the rhetorical question assumes a negative answer. Can a blind man lead a blind man? And that should seem obvious. Blind people, if they need guidance, need people who can see to help them. And then Jesus makes it clear what he assumes the answer to be. Will they not both fall into a pit? And what he's, what he's saying is this. As he's just given his commands, as he's just laid out his ethic for his disciples, and as Luke's readers are reading this gospel, it should become clear there are certain other people who've set themselves up as teachers in Israel who don't, who don't follow the standard very well. We've already been introduced to them. They looked down their nose in judgment at Levi, a tax collector, and were astonished and, quite frankly, a little disappointed that Jesus would eat with him. And they had their own rules and their own standards, and they couldn't believe, they were aghast, that Jesus' disciples would dare to eat with unwashed hands and to crush the grain. And Jesus is now basically saying, in essence, you, you can't mix my teaching with theirs. The blank here is choose your teachers carefully. Choose your teachers carefully. We, and I'm pretty certain he's talking about the Pharisees here. In a parallel passage in Matthew 15, he says this. The disciples came and said to him, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He just said something. His disciples said, oh, Jesus, the Pharisees were offended. And Jesus responded, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. This is also, by the way, starting to explain some of the blindness that's going to come a little later when you talk about having a log in your eye. Choose your teachers carefully. Jesus also in Matthew a little later has this to say in chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That's a Gentile convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. That's what happens when the blind lead the blind. That's what happens when people who don't have spiritual sight disciple and lead. They, they, they make people twice as much a son of hell. And so Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us, be careful who you choose as your teachers. And if you think you can mix and match Jesus' teaching with pop culture and Oprah or whatever, it's not going to work so well. Jesus goes on to say, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So the next one, you are not above your teacher. What's the point? Jesus has just promised us blessings when we're persecuted, blessings when we're mistreated, called us to love our enemies. We're going to struggle with that. And Jesus, in his life, is going to model that. Jesus is going to model that. 
And when you and I grumble, here's, here's this convicting thought, when you and I grumble at these events in life, when we're no longer experiencing the respect, no longer experiencing the applaud and aplomb of, the, of our community and of our culture, Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. We need to be careful. We're not above our Lord. We don't have more rights than our Lord. And if he modeled it and he was willing to be merciful and he was willing to love his enemies, take heed lest we think somehow we're above him. We don't need to do that. We found some way to avoid that. His disciples are not above him. There's also a warning about those who might go beyond. Those who might go beyond what is written. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul warns about those who go beyond what is written. Or in 2 John, about those who go beyond the teaching of Christ. We're not above our teacher. But the point is this, we're getting to this. If we're his disciples... We simply do what he tells us to do. We don't need to get creative. We don't need to get innovative. We don't need to come up with our own rules and laws. That's what the Pharisees did. We just, okay, he's our teacher. He told us what to do. Okay, let's go do that. And that's what Jesus is calling for. And then he gives us this encouraging promise, point C. You will, however, become like your teacher. You will become like your teacher. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And Jesus' disciples, many of whom were ignorant, untaught fishermen, at least by the Pharisees' evaluation, and a little later in Acts, the sequel to Luke's, Luke, we read in Acts 14, 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. We're not above Jesus, but as we sit under his teaching, will we become like him? That, that's the promise. That's the good news. If you'll sit under Jesus' teaching, if you will let him be your teacher and your Lord, over time you'll become more and more like him. There's a, there's a flip side to that danger. If you sit under other teaching, if you give yourself and your mind to other things, you'll become more and more like those things. So that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. We've we got to be careful where we're feeding from when it comes to truth. We've got to be careful, and Jesus is highlighting that importance. You will become like your teacher, which is the most terrifying thought once you start to have kids, because you realize, who are my children's primary teacher? They're going to become like me. That. <laughs> And Jesus is warning us here about the importance of who we go to for teaching, who we turn to for instruction. Be wary. If they're blind, they'll lead you into a pit as well. But you will become like your teacher. Jesus is, in effect, basically saying, be, be wary of those Pharisees. We've already seen what they do. They're judgmental. They don't, they don't model this, the ethic that Jesus is calling for. They're not merciful. They are judgmental. And they're blind. Which leads then, point three, to the need to remove the log first and then the splinter. Remove the log first and then the splinter. Having said all this, the standard of mercy, the importance of choosing your teachers, he turns to them, and, and I think in a sense he's, he's warning us of following that pharisaical tradition, pattern, 
Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. There's four points here, quickly. First, don't judge hypocritically. Don't judge hypocritically. The word hypocrite is a, is a compound Greek word. Hupo, like a hupodermic needle that goes under the skin, under a mask. And it's, it's a word for the theater. You remember in, in um, Greek theater, they'd wear masks on the face, the happy face, the sad face. And the point is this. The mask could have a happy face on, and underneath, you're really frowning. And, and the mask could have a sad face on, and you could be happy. That you could be two different people. You could appear to be one thing, but be another. And there's no trait that I'm aware of in the Gospels that more provoked and angered Jesus than this, hypocrisy. And so that's what he's calling his disciples to do, or to not do, is to not be hypocritical. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We're dealing with a metaphor, because if you really had a log, right? But what's the point? How ridiculous is it? If I came in here, and Jesus has just come up with a, with a condition, I think... I think we'd call it today ocular timberitis. Um, and you've got somebody, just imagine somebody walked in for, for, and they got, forget a log, they got a big stick, like tree branch sticking out of their eye. And they come up to you, I think you got an eyelash stuck in. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, it's comical. And Jesus is going to liken that to something we do. And we recognize how ridiculous that would be. Somebody's got a log, a two by four, coming out of their eye. But what he's getting after is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You know, Paul makes the same point. And the hypocrisy is this. We've got sin in our own life. We've got issues in our own life. We've got problems in our own life that we're not dealing with. And instead, all our eyes are seeing is that little small flaw that person has. This is what ties the whole passage together. Don't be judgmental. Don't be looking for faults. Don't be looking for someone to pounce on. You want to pounce on somebody, pounce on yourself. Don't judge hypocritically. Don't, don't hold other people to standards that you're not willing to hold yourself to. Paul, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 2. You therefore have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. This, this, I think, helps explain what Jesus is talking when he says, don't judge, don't condemn. There are, there are times and places to do that. Like I said, there's a sheet at the back. I try to unpack that further. But don't judge hypocritically. Don't, don't, don't judge with a case of logi. That's the vernacular. Why? Well, one, you'd be a hypocrite. Two, point B, sin in your own life will distort your judgment. Sin in your own life will distort your judgment. First, it makes you a hypocrite, which I think is about the one quality most offensive to Jesus. Second, sin in your own life will distort your judgment. I mean, I know this is true. You get, you get angry at somebody. Somebody does something that offends you. And yes, you know you've done something wrong. Yes, you know you've... you've but you're so focused on their wrong. And you're so convinced... 
And what happens is that sin in your own life will warp your vision, just like the heat coming off the highway warps what's behind it. It's always the case that someone else's faults are big and my faults are small. Someone else's sins are grievous and offensive, and I can't believe they did that, and mine are excusable. Other people get angry. I can be a little, you know, grumpy. Other people tell lies. I stretch the truth, right? So we're tempted to think, they got the log, I have the splinter, the problem is, while, you're, while there's anything going on of sin in your life, you can't trust your own judgment. Think about it. This, the smartest, most inherently brilliant man ever made, Adam, able to zoologically classify all the animals in a single afternoon, once he sins and eats the fruit and, and, and incurs God's wrath, this brilliant man, who's now just incurred the cosmic death penalty... His solution to his problem is if we can just sew together some leaves, I think we'll be okay. That's just stupid. But you and I know we can do the same thing. Sin clouds our judgment. And that's the second point. How on earth can you see clearly the deal with your brother's sin when you got sin in your own life? Now, the problem is we go with it this far, and our temptation is to say, you're right. So therefore, I shouldn't deal with other people's sin because i got sin in my life, and I don't have to deal with my sin then, and we just won't deal with our own sin, and you sin and I sin, and we just won't call each other on it. (laughs) That's not where this ends, is it? It ends with specks being pulled out of people's eyes. There's nothing wrong. The thought is here is not, leave specks alone. Specks are just fine. It ends with specks being removed. I mean, specks in people's eyes are are irritating to them, and it's a kindness to help them. Deal with your own sin first. Deal with your own sin first. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. So the hypocrisy is saying, I don't want to deal with my sin, I want to deal with your sin. That's the hypocrisy. Cowardice or apathy says, I won't deal with your sin and I won't deal with my sin, and you do the same thing to me. Cool? And what Jesus is calling us to do is to deal first with our own sin. And then, he says, then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Point D. Then correct and restore your brother. Which again is how we know that don't judge is not an absolute prohibition to all judgment because. Taking out specs requires judgment and discernment. And we are called to lovingly come up alongside one another and correct each other. But we're doing it like my kids should do it. Hey, Dad, Dad said we shouldn't be playing in the puddle. And not, gotcha, you know? We're doing it while we're not playing in the puddle ourselves. <laughs> Listen to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch to yourselves, lest you be tempted also, and bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I also think to some degree Jesus is explaining how the Pharisees could miss the mark so badly. By being blind to their own sin. He's already charged them with that implicitly. Remember when they, why did he go and eat with Levi? He said, ah, the healthy have no need of a physician. Which is to say, you don't recognize your sin, or to put it in this metaphor, you don't recognize the log in your own eye 
Therefore, you can't see clearly on how to size up Levi. And you won't see clearly as you judge others. And then don't see clearly as they evaluate Jesus himself. Jesus is explaining to his disciples how it could be that these religious leaders who've who've stood in the gap, who've held the fort, could be so wildly wrong because being unwilling to deal with their own sin, being unwilling to deal with their own unrighteousness, concluding that they are just, that they are good, they see and evaluate everyone else wrongly. And they are judgmental and they condemn. But there's absolutely in here instruction and room, as Jesus says, for us first to deal with our own sin, then to deal with others. Then to deal with others. This is what it means to bear compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy doesn't mean we never correct people. It just means we do it the right way, first after dealing with our own sin. That's part of compassion and mercy. And it centers around finding the right teacher and following the right leader. Let's, let's close in prayer. Lord God, we, we want to be your true disciples. We want to follow your lead. And Lord, you modeled perfectly all these things that you call us to. Lord, guard us from hypocritical, self-righteous judgment. Guard us from viewing other people's sins as great and our own as small. Give us the merciful heart that is your heart. Help us lovingly to correct each other gently, rightly, after first dealing with our own sin, Lord. Help us live out that heart of mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.